0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 7, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, staff writer Jennifer Cousin-Frankel joins us to talk about a study that combines two hot areas of research, CRISPR gene editing and immunotherapy for cancer. These two things come together in the study and are tested in patients. And researcher Damien Finch joins us from Australia. He's going to talk about dating Ice Age cave paintings using nearby wasp nests, now we have staff writer Jennifer Cousin-Frankel. She wrote a story this week on CRISPR and cancer immunotherapy, two big ideas mushed together for the first time in human patients. Hi, Jennifer.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Sure, I just said something scary. It's not every day that we get to say something is a first. There's always a lot of pushback whenever we put it into a story or if it comes up in a research paper, but this is some type of first.
1: This is the first time that researchers have reported on Taking immune cells, in this case, the T cells, which we kind of think of as the soldiers of the immune system that fight off infection, mm-hmm. using CRISPR to modify them, yeah. and then putting them back inside. A human body and seeing Mm -hmm. what happens. That hasn't been done before. It hasn't been described before. There are trials that are going on that are testing this.
0: And this is why we never put first in a headline.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Hard to do.
0: Let's dive into the techniques. We're going to talk about cancer immunotherapy, and then we're also going to talk about CRISPR. We need to kind of understand both of those things to understand what happened in this paper. This is a specific kind of cancer immunotherapy, right?
1: Yes, that's right. So cancer immunotherapy is essentially trying to harness the immune system to fight cancer. And it's something that's been really hot in the cancer field for the last several years. In fact, won the Nobel Prize just the other year. What this study is making use of is one technique in cancer immunotherapy that uses the T-cells. And it tries to sort of help the T-cells
0: recognize tumor cells and then destroy them. Some of the problems that have come up as people have experimented with that were things like doesn't really get into solid tumors and some other things.
1: This is still a really new field and people are still working very hard to improve its success. It's been pretty successful in blood cancers like leukemias and lymphomas. And there are two CAR T cell therapies that companies have developed and that have been approved. There are some additional hurdles in solid tumors, and it has been more difficult to consistently get this therapy to work in solid tumors.
0: Solid tumors are things like brain tumors, pancreas tumor, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah. Any tumor that's kind of a solid mass as opposed
0: to in the blood. That's the cancer immunotherapy side of things. Let's talk about the CRISPR side of things. Can you just tell us what CRISPR is? And then maybe we can talk about how it's been used therapeutically or not so far.
1: So CRISPR is another really hot area in biology. It's a technology that essentially cuts DNA and then the DNA can kind of recombine in different ways. It can be used in different settings to add genes or DNA, to remove them. It depends, but it can give a lot of flexibility around modifying DNA. And it's used in all different settings, not just in medicine, but certainly right. medicine is one area where there's been a lot of interest in using CRISPR because it's a way of modifying the genome.
0: In this case, CRISPR is used to modify immune cells. So they took immune cells out of a patient and then used this gene editing technique to make changes to them.
1: They had these three patients and what they did was they took out blood cells and then they modified those cells in the lab. They had to add in a gene that was going to target a protein that was on the surface of their cancer cells. The other thing that they did was they used CRISPR to edit the genome such that they were knocking out three other genes and the genes that they chose, they chose because they hoped they would make the T cells even more powerful. They hoped they would help them hang around longer in the body, Mm -hmm. more effective against the
0: tumors. Then they reintroduced those cells. They
1: gave them back. And that whole process takes several weeks. It takes four to six weeks from the time you take the blood out to the time you put the cells back in. They had to go through a number of layers to make sure that they were really doing everything safely and carefully.
0: So what were they worried about when they reintroduced these cells into the body?
1: One question was just, you know, would these cells even survive? Would right. they just kind of disappear? Which has been a problem in general with some of the genetically modified T cells. It can be hard for them to kind of thrive in the body. And these these were cells that had been modified in several different ways, And then, of course, another question is, are they going to cause harm Mm -hmm. if they do survive? And one particular concern with CRISPR is that when you go in to do this editing, you can have these off-target effects where you accidentally cause modifications to other DNA that you weren't aiming for. There was concern that that could happen. And then, of course, if that's changing other DNA in the T cells, who knows what effects that might have on the
0: patient's. So those are the big two questions. And then also, you know, they probably wanted to know if the people would get better.
1: Everyone, of course, hoped that it would help these patients get better. At the same time, the trial was not really designed for efficacy. It was too small and it was also so new. And so they made certain choices in this very specific details of the treatment they offered that improved safety. There were certain things they did to try and make it less likely that the immune system of the patients would react in a sort of dangerous way to the cells. But in doing so, that could potentially reduce how effective the treatment is. Yeah, You know, the target that they picked on the cancer cells, they picked that specific target because there had been a number of trials targeting that with traditional therapy. So they knew it was probably a pretty safe target, but it maybe isn't the best target.
0: Unfortunately, and as you might expect from the way we've been talking about it, the patients did not recover from their cancer because of this therapy. What were some of the other results of the experiment that we can talk about?
1: So I would say the results were that for the time for which they've been followed, the treatment appears safe so far. Nothing scary happened, nothing, there were no showstoppers. They saw some off-target effects, but those off-target effects didn't seem to cause any obvious harm to Mm -hmm. the patients. And the cells that had the off-target effects the percentage of cells with those effects seem to kind of fade out over time.
0: What about the target effects, like the changes made to the T-cells of these patients? Were those persistent in the body?
1: One thing that I think was quite heartening is that these T-cells really stuck around in a way that other T-cells going after this particular target haven't in other published studies. And Mm -hmm. so they've, they've lasted so far up to nine months, and they're continuing to follow these patients. And also when they took out the cells over months, which they did, they would take blood from the patients and then look at the cells again. They could get them back and study them in the lab. And those cells were targeting cancer in the lab. Now, like you say, in the patients, the benefits were definitely limited. There were three people treated. One of those people has since died. And in the other two, their disease has progressed and they are getting other treatments. Mm -hmm. So the effects were limited. You know, it can be hard to kind of know how to understand that. On the one hand, this is just three patients. And so who are very, very sick. And so if we're thinking about what's going to be an effective treatment, you need to treat more people to really know And then again, you're thinking about this first time in people, the focus was on safety. Um, Yeah. From your
0: story, from your quotes, it really seemed like the people in this field were saying this is a step. This is getting us over a really big hurdle.
1: Yes. I think it's a step. And I think it's kind of layering on the use of CRISPR onto this other area of cell therapy that have gotten so much interest and generated so much excitement Mm -hmm. in cancer, but also still have a lot of room to improve. And it's a way of saying, can we make them better using this other technology?
0: What's expected to happen next? More of the same thing? Are they going to try to aim for different
1: targets? One of the exciting things about this field right now is there's so much happening and people have so many different ideas for what they could try. And there are a Mm -hmm. lot of different theories and we don't really know what's going to pan out and what's not. And so there are a lot of different groups thinking about different targets, different cancers, other diseases, of course, to apply CRISPR to. There are companies that are involved. There are just a lot of different ways you could go with this. But right now there are other trials that are recruiting patients for CRISPR-modified T-cells. And some people I talked to said, you know, there are surely going to be many more trials opening in part as a result of this study.
0: What kind of regulatory oversight was there for this? Is there a body that governs CRISPR studies?
1: There's not a body that's specific to CRISPR, but there is a a group called the Recombinant DNA Advisory Committee, which is a a panel that has traditionally vetted the safety and ethics of different gene therapy trials funded by the U.S. government or other other funders. And so this went through the review of that committee, which is colloquially known as the RAC, uh, the RAC. (laughs) And it also went through, you know, a lot of review of the National Institutes of Health, a lot of review from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, know, as you can imagine with anything new where you're you're genetically modifying cells to a degree you haven't before or Mm -hmm. in a way you haven't before, and then you're putting them into people, you have to be careful. And of course, you know, everyone has hopes for this therapy in the years ahead. And because of that, you have to be so careful when you're starting out.
0: The hopes of a lot of people were pinned on gene therapies and, you know, some early problems. Really put a damper on the field for a long time.
1: Yes, if something really terrible happens, not only is that obviously terrible for that individual, it has these ripple effects across the field. And mm-hmm. so, I think the people running this trial were thinking of both of those things as they designed and pursued this study.
0: Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Jennifer Cousin Frankel is a staff writer at Science. You can find a link to her story and the related science paper at sciencemagorg podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Damian Finch about using wasp nests to date cave paintings in Australia. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's aaasorg join. Australia's Kimberley region, which is about the size of California and tucked up in the northwest corner of the country, was likely first settled by humans 60,000 years ago, and they've been busy ever since. The region is home to thousands of ancient cave paintings, many without clear dates. This week in Science Advances, Damien Finch and colleagues were able to date some of these paintings. The paintings are called the Guions, and at one time, they were known as the Bradshaws. Hi, Damien.
2: Hi, Sarah.
0: Tell me about the Kimberley. When did you first go?
2: Uh, 2010 when I was there for the first time, it was a three-week bushwalk, and I'd never felt so removed from the rest of humanity. And yet everywhere we walked in this remote area, we'd see signs of people having painted there in the distant past.
0: There's a lot of different varieties of paintings out there. What What's special about this specific grouping, the Guions?
2: The thing that captures people's imagination about the Guions is that they're human forms and they're one of the earliest styles of Kimberley rock art, but not the earliest. Prior to this, people were painting animals and plants, things that you would eat. And they have all sorts of decorations attached to them, really long headdresses. In some cases, the headdress is painted as though it was longer than the person themselves. So huge things, decorations around the arms and the waist and, and the ankles, very ceremonial looking images of people.
0: And they're delicate. They remind me a little bit of the Lascaux caves in France or Egyptian art that I've seen. They have this Technical excellence that just they're
2: just beautiful. They certainly have a strong impact when you first see them, especially one that's well preserved. Very fine details the, the brush strokes must have been very fine, and the brush strokes were quite long. So, the technology of painting, uh, painting some reasonably large images, must have been quite well resolved by then.
0: You talked about earlier periods and later periods of painting in this area, but most of those dates are relative. You can say this painting is older than that painting, but getting solid dates has been difficult. What, what's made it so difficult to get those absolute dates for these paintings?
2: The paint that was used now doesn't contain any organic material that we could radiocarbon date or anything else that we currently date. Basically, the pigment is just an ochre. It's a hematite. So the only thing that we can do is date material that may be associated with the rock art, things like wasp nests or other mineral accretions that might grow on mm-hmm. the surface of the rock after, after millennia.
0: So these wasp nests that you use as your dateable material, I'm just shocked that they're still around because we are talking thousands of years here. Was that surprising to you that a wasp nest would hang around for that long?
2: That original work was done a long time ago now, 1997 when Bert Roberts and his team from the University of Wollongong dated wasp nests using optically stimulated luminescence, OSL. And they determined at that time uh, that nests were surviving for 20 and 30,000 years. So I knew wow. that, yeah, well, maybe it's worth trying a different technique on those nests. If they're going to survive that long, then that's a start.
0: Some of the ones that you were able to find were under paintings, and some of them were over paintings. So you're able to narrow the window for when these paintings came on the scene.
2: Yes, and that is what was new. Because we were using radiocarbon dating techniques, we can now date really small samples. So if there was a large wasp nest underneath a painting and you removed the wasp nest, then you're removing a big chunk of the painting and that wouldn't be acceptable culturally. Right it would be too damaging. But with the small samples that we're able to date, we can take small parts, preferably from an area of the rock about to fall off anyway. And so the traditional owners, the Quiddin people in the Northern Kimberley, they were happy for us to take their small samples from underneath some paintings, as well as the ones over top, which do virtually no damage whatsoever.
0: Mm -hmm. What are these wasp nests made of that they're so durable through time?
2: it's usually, when we say mud, it's more like a sandy material up there in this part of the Kimberley, sandstone predominates. So when that rock breaks down, it forms a very sandy sort of soil and that gets mixed in with anything else that might be in the area. Up in the Kimberley, we get a lot of burning. These days, about a 30, 30% of the Kimberley is burnt each year. And going back in time, fire is pretty prevalent as well. So in the atmosphere, in the environment, we do get charcoal. So we've basically got sand and charcoal.
0: And that charcoal is what you were able to tap into to get your dates?
2: That's correct. We found out by looking at modern wasp nests, ones that were just recently constructed, we saw that the bulk of the carbon-bearing material was really charcoal, although there was a lot of plant matter too, tiny little seeds, because we're talking about mud balls that are only a few millimetres in diameter, so you can't fit anything big in the, in the ball of mud that the wasp flies off with. The charcoal, uh, therefore, is microscopic.
0: What really surprised me from your examination of the modern nest was that some of the charcoal in there was a thousand years old.
2: Yes. If we're going to date wasp nests, we, we're assuming that, <laughs> that we're dating the age when the nest was built. Other people had already raised the question well, how do you know? How do you really know? Yeah. And I was curious about it. So we, to be thorough, we'll just date a few. That then triggered a program to go back again to collect more nests, to analyze them more carefully. We pulled them apart right. under a microscope. We separated that out the plant material and we dated the plant material. We dated the charcoal. We dated the nest in total. And most of the time, 80% of the time, the charcoal there is quite modern, less than a couple right. of hundred years.
0: It matched up with the plant material. That's
2: right. Yes. Yeah. And then every now and then you get some old older material and it was uh, a thousand years old in in one case, some of the charcoal. But most of the time, the average works out to be a couple of hundred years. So In terms of the precision that we're looking for, it's it's okay.
0: What kind of dates were you able to obtain for these paintings?
2: Well, for the wasp nests, first of all, we had 24 of those, and they were either over or under 21 Mm -hmm. different paintings. So the range of dates varies from 1,000 years up to 17,000 years old. It was quite a range.
0: Some of the nests you saw associated with the Guian paintings were 17,000 years
2: old. That's correct, yes.
0: How long is the time span that these paintings were created and according to what you were able to measure?
2: If you look at the pattern of the ages of the nests over the top and the nests underneath, the maximum minimum age constraints, then you get an age bracket that's about 1,000 years broad and it's centered on 12,000 years. So what we say is that from this initial data, it looks like the Guillaume paintings proliferated at around about 12,000 years ago.
0: How narrow can you make this kind of, this range?
2: It becomes statistics. If we had 10 times as many, then we could plot the distribution, the age distribution of of these paintings, and it'd just be a probability distribution. That's what we get out of this data. Yeah, There's no relationship between the, the nest and the painting other than the wasp chose to build a nest on top of one of these paintings at any time after it was painted or the artist may have chosen at any time to paint something over the top of an existing nest. Right. So it's only by doing a larger number of ages on wasp nests that you can start to narrow down the bracket. So at this stage, it does look as though uh, it clusters around 12,000 years. But even then, we've got one date that says a particular painting must be more than about 16,000 years old. So that's either an outlier or it's just an isolated point of data and we don't know until until we date a lot more as to how significant that is.
0: Yeah. And there are a lot more of those paintings.
2: There are a lot. Yes. We've sampled some more. We haven't processed them yet, but the method will work and we've only explored a smaller part of the Kimberley. The Kimberley is, uh, as you say, the size of California or Germany. So it, it's huge and there's a lot more work to be done. But the encouraging thing is that we've got a way forward now.
0: When you get these absolute dates, can you correlate other things that you know about and kind of give you a better picture of the people who did this and what their lives were like?
2: Exactly. We've worked closely with archaeologists from the University of Western Australia. They are particularly excited about the idea of being able to now relate the age of the paintings with the things that we find out from archaeological excavations in the region we know what sort of stone tools were in use around those times and from paleo environmental research we know what the climate was doing at that time we know where sea levels were so we start to build up a feel for what aboriginal society in the kimberley might have been like at this time that would have inspired them to to do these sorts of paintings which because it of style from the animals and the plants that they primarily chose to depict on uh, rock paintings prior to this.
0: Mm-hmm. Are these types of wasp nests that you use or similar kinds of nests, are they common in other parts of the world? Can this technique be used to date sites, say, in China or in Europe?
2: I think so. I look at uh, rock art images uh, from all around the world and and I do see wasp nests in those those photos. (laughs) The United States, I would say, yeah, it's a possibility there. Certainly I've seen uh, images in China and throughout the rest of Northern Australia as well.
0: This could be a big boon to people interested in Ice Age paintings.
2: It's a promising technique, I think certainly beyond Australia, And it requires a large number of samples and great cooperation culturally to take those samples. But yeah, it's promising.
0: What about the traditional owners, the people who lived in this area and likely descended from the painters of the Guions? What has been their attitude towards this process, towards this research, and and now these findings?
2: It takes time to build up trust because we are working with someone else's culture. And the, the people that live in that region their ancestors were the people that painted these paintings. So the connection with all of the rock art is very strong still. We, over a period of years, and other members of the team, uh, uh, my supervisors, they had been working on this for quite some time before I arrived and developed the relationships. And then we would work with the traditional owners on site. We would go out on country together. We'd talk to them and show them what we are proposing to do. And they were with us every step of the way. They do wonder sometimes why we want to do what we want to do as as scientists and spending days, weeks and months out in the bush looking for samples to take. Because culturally, the fact that something is, uh, that these paintings are 12,000 years old is not important in, in their own culture. Their culture is independent of chronometric sort of data that we produce but particularly younger people who take tourists and visitors out and show them the rock art with great pride. I think sometimes find it difficult when visitors say, well, hmm, very interesting. How old is it? And there's no answer to that question (laughs) in the way that the rest of the world would understand, which is a, just a a date, a number.
0: Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Damien.
2: Sarah, it's absolute pleasure.
0: Damien Finch is a PhD candidate in the School of Earth Science at the University of Melbourne. You can find a link to his Science Advances article at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There, you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can subscribe, of course, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, many other places. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. Special thanks to Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.